I'm your chair talk host Nemanja. And let's first go back to previous week episode with Tanya Kuzman from PricewaterhouseCooper. I would say that uh, primarily there is four main aspects that corporations provide to startups when we start collaborating uh, on a partnership level. So uh, one thing is definitely access to resources and the network. The second thing that uh, definitely is is beneficial for, for startups and that they get through the cooperation with corporates is insights. The third thing I would say is that actually uh, once you get into the corporate world you really realize what is the cycle. And then uh, I would say the last thing that is I would say the main thing is that you actually um, are able to see how it will look like for you if you start growing at a really fast pace down the line in like three to five years. When it comes to uh, success, each model can be successful and each model can be unsuccessful. Uh, And it really depends on the fact of whether from the start, corporates and startups have set it up the clear objective of their cooperation. I think that 10 years from now, uh, what we are having currently will be almost nothing. Like I think that uh, 10 years from now we will see the pace that is hundreds of times faster than what we are having currently. And I think that the biggest challenge for companies will be to keep up. And that's why I think that this collaboration between corporate and startups will be even more uh, present and profound going forward. This is chair, place where we discuss innovations. Humankind in the last years or last decades made so many breakthroughs. We went to the deepest parts of our oceans. Uh, We sent uh, man-made objects outside of our solar systems. And later we are talking about to put our foot on Mars. But beside all of this, we still don't know exactly how our brain works. On this subject of neuroscience, uh, we are going to talk today either from the angle of innovation or talk about innovations from the uh, perspective of neuroscience. And our guest on this subject today is Dr. Uh, Nikolaos Dimitriadis, and he's applying neuroscience in businesses and education for more than 15 years. Uh, right now, he's a head of neuroconsulting services at Optimal HR Group. So, Nicolas. Uh, welcome to chair. Thank you very much for having me. So, um, how come that you uh, came to this field? It's so interesting. So, uh, the, the story is always personal, right? <laughs> I mean, the, 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 something happened usually in your life that uh, pushes you to embrace something with all your energy. Okay, And this is actually the way to judge if something is important in your life. How much energy you put into that. And in, in my case... Something happened at the end of the uh, 90s decade. So 97, I had a car accident. And in that car accident, I was uh, knocked unconscious. It was not life-threatening, but uh, for uh, some period of time, which I cannot tell you how much, because I was unconscious, was it one minute, 30 seconds, five minutes, I don't know, I actually blacked out. And then I came back to my senses and, you know, hospital and all the process. And after this event, I started thinking, who switched me off? Because uh, when I blacked out, the moment that I blacked out was actually when I was driving the car and I realized that I was about to have, you know, a crash. 
And at that millisecond, something, somebody, okay, decided, oops, Nikos has to go. So switched me off because it was not a conscious uh, voluntary decision. So I, I completely blacked out and coming back was not also my decision. <laughs> so I didn't say, ah, okay, now let me come back. So I started um, um, searching a lot about decision-making, about human nature, about behavior, and about who's in control. That's a big question in life. You know, coming, coming from business studies, and especially from marketing, which is heavily psychology and sociology, even anthropology, I always had these questions in my mind. But this personal experience really pushed me to say, who's in control? Are you in control? Since I haven't decided to switch off. Of course, searching, I found out that, yes, it's a very, very known phenomenon for the brain to switch you off when you're about to experience something traumatic. Yeah. And of course, the advantage is you switch off because you will have a better ability to take decisions afterwards to save your life than if you really experience the trauma. So my brain decided, oops, crash is coming. Bye-bye, Nikos. Yes. <laughs> and then when, because my conscious, consciousness was switched off, but the brain was still listening, feeling, etc. So when the brain realized that the worst part is over, it brought me back. So then I realized, you know, I just, started going deeper into the rabbit hole. So is the brain taking over only in very difficult life-threatening situations? And then it allows me to be in control in my everyday life? And of course the answer is no. The brain is in control even in my everyday normal life. So that, that was the, the personal experience that pushed me to explore what's happening with the brain. There's also a professional reason. The fact that being in marketing, I always had this dissatisfaction of the models that we had in order to explain why people buy or, or embrace an advertising campaign or reject it. Or, you know, um, they are ready to, to, to go and to recommend something, etc. So consumer behavior, if you take a book of consumer behavior, you will see many theories many, many theories from years of cognitive psychology and behavioral psychology, but very little on neuroscience. So being a marketing consultant, you know, somebody that worked with companies uh, and tried to help them achieve their objectives, and also as, a, as an academic teaching new marketers or new, new, you know, new generations, these models, these theories we had did not satisfy my my uh, approach to doing business because they were always letting more questions unanswered than answering questions. In the end of the day, it was a matter of luck. <laughs> okay. So around 2005, combining my personal experience with a car accident and my deep dissatisfaction of predictability and effectiveness in achieving behavioral change in marketing, I was... Uh, forced, <laughs> to, uh, but positively, to, to search new answers. And I saw the light with neuroscience. It's incredible, incredible how some accident can you put on the, some completely new path in life. And uh, I'm coming to that, that you are doing right now, and one of your biggest passion is uh, uh, neuroassessment in leadership. 
And since uh, uh, here we are talking about innovations, mostly in the business perspective, and um, usually it's said uh, in the business, if it's not uh, measurable, uh, it's, uh, it's not uh, manageable. So uh, we are coming to that part of narrow assessment in leadership uh, where you need to take measurement of the empathy. And that's something that was very interesting to me to, to ask as a first question of, of, of this part, how you do actually, how you actually do that? This is fascinating because empathy is one of my big passions in life. And because empathy seems to be the thing that makes us human. Uh, many people believe that um, intelligence and IQ is what differentiates us from other you know, animals on this planet. And indeed, we do have the, the ability to think abstractly and do mathematics. Well, well, we know that an elephant cannot do that. But to me, mathematics and, and abstract thinking is, is a side effect. The key issue that helps us achieve in, in humankind what we have achieved is actually the ability to understand each other in a very deep level and thus react to each other in a way that creates groups, teamwork and collective achievement. Because if you think about it, we don't achieve anything alone. Nothing, zero. Yeah. Actually, if you leave a human in a, in, in a jungle alone, they will achieve very little. So it is teamwork and in human social interaction that makes us who we are. And the brain function that allows us to be so successful is actually empathy. You know, humans have the ability to think what you think up to the sixth degree of question. What do I mean? I, I, what is Nemanja thinking about me? Nemanja, maybe if I say something, will think that. So if I respond this, he will think that and will respond like, if I say this, he will say this. Up to six degrees of this playing in my mind about our interaction, humans are able to do. So imagine what kind of predictability power this gives us to make sure I say the right thing, so you say the right thing, so I say the right thing, so you say the right thing, to, to get achieve the outcome, outcome. Yeah. to get the behavioral outcome. And this is empathy. Now, one of the things that fascinates me in empathy is that Empathy is not one thing. There are different empathy networks in the brain. One type of empathy is what I just mentioned. It's called mentalizing or theory of mind. What is theory of mind? I have a theory that you are thinking something. Uh, I cannot have a theory that the chair is thinking something. Okay. So I look at the chair and this empathy network in my brain is not activating because there is nothing to see in the chair. But when I see you, and not only humans, maybe even my dog, okay, but mainly in humans. My brain says, okay, automatically, yeah, the brain says, okay, what is Nemanja thinking? What is Nemanja about? How is Nemanja feeling at this moment? This is one type of empathy. Put myself in your shoes. But it's not the only empathy. This is kind of analytical empathy. We call it cognitive empathy. Because it has to do with me stopping and thinking. But that's not the only empathy that exists. There is another type of empathy. Actually, there are two more types of empathy, but the one that we measure, that you asked, is the second type of empathy, which is called emotional empathy. And emotional empathy is more intuitive. It doesn't have to do with me stopping and saying, hmm, Nemanja is looking at me like this, moved like this, he told me this. So this is what Nemanja is thinking. It's not that. It's intuitively, automatically, experiencing the emotion that you are experiencing. Without thinking about it. Without. If you think, it's not anymore emotional. So if you are, if I come in the office 
and you cry, if I tear up, this is emotional empathy. You can also call it emotional synchronization or emotional contagion because you pass your emotion. And this is very powerful also in, in, in human beings. And this is the empathy that, that we measure. So what we have done, and we are kind of innovative since we talk about innovation and pioneering in the whole world. Me and, and my team, we have developed a protocol by using neuroscientific equipment. So we actually put an electroencephalogram on your head and we put you in front of a laptop. In this laptop, we show you faces of people with basic emotions. There is this theory of basic emotions, you know, that are portrayed on the face. Yeah. Sad, angry. Bravo, exactly. Yeah. It depends on the theory. It can be five, four is the, the, the smallest number, it can be eight and nine. Uh, and we show you from some scientific databases that they're confirmed such uh, faces. You see the faces and we measure in these few seconds that we flash the faces on the laptop screen, we measure through electroencephalogram if the brain, your brain, mirrors the emotion that you see on the screen. We don't ask you if you feel it. That's a completely different story. Actually, we do separate emotions and feelings. It's not the same phenomenon. It's a completely different thing. So the few seconds that you look anger, we try through the electroencephalogram, see if anger was registered in your brain. Actually, if your brain experiences anger. And the more, and we have an algorithm, of course, the more accurate your brain is, in recreating and experiencing the emotion you see on the screen, the higher score you get. Okay. So in the end, there is a composite, an aggregated uh, through the algorithm average that says that, yes, Nemanja scored very high on emotional empathy because his brain, in most of the emotions that we showed to you, scored very high. And what does that mean for Nemanja as a leader, as a professional, as a person in society? This means that your intuition about somebody's emotional state is very accurate. And this has a big advantage evolutionary. What is the advantage of this? It's not only me theoretically, you know, abstractly, saying, ah, Nemanja is thinking this. This gives me some amount of information, but I know much better what Nemanja is going through if I also experience the emotion that you experience, this means that I have internal experience and information which not only tells me theoretically what you are feeling, but makes me also experience it. And thus I can respond much deeper and much more appropriately than just knowing what you are yeah. feeling. Now I'm experiencing it. So this is the one advantage. And the second advantage is that if you see me cry the moment you cry, you bond with me. Evolutionary speaking, when we lived in caves, in the savanna, it's not only if Nikos knew theoretically what Nemios is having the same emotional reaction. And the fact that you and me had the same emotional reaction towards the same thing made us part of the same team. So emotional empathy not only gives me a deep intuitive uh, information of how, what you go through, but also it makes you bond with you. Because the moment I will portray the same emotion that you have, your brain says, Nikos knows. Nikos is with me. 
So bonding in society is based on this ability to share emotions, not just to understand theoretical emotions, but to share emotions. You, you, you took me as an example for measurement and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, uh, but I want to ask you about the data, uh, broad data that you get. What you do when you have uh, many people as you did scanned, many brains scanned, more than, uh, as I see here, 5,500 5, brains in more than 20, 25 countries, so different cultures, different languages. How are you leveraging to, to, to use this data to, to get uh, uh, conclusions for different people, different groups and so on? Right. This is a great question and, and many of our clients and partners are, are asking this. First of all, I have to tell you that the more you go down to the how the brain operates, the more you understand that we are all one in this planet. And then you understand that the way sometimes that we stereotype different cultures or countries is, um, is not applicable so much to how the brain operates. What do I mean? I mean that Empathy, for example, it's a human universal. It's not like some countries, some brains in some cultures have empathy and some all human beings, if they're born with a functional brain, we, 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 we call it neurotypical. Okay. We don't anymore say healthy and not healthy. That's, okay. not, that's not politically <laughs> correct. So we call it neurotypical or neurodiverse. Okay. So if you have a neurotypical brain, you are born with the ability to empathize. Um, cognitive empathy, the analytical one, emotional empathy, this synchronization, and there is also behavioral empathy, it's, it's a different story. So we're all born with this ability. But cultures, so the way that, that you are nurtured, nurtured you know, the, the old dilemma, nature versus nurture, the way that, that your brain um, experiences different situations in life says to the brain, use more empathy or use less empathy. So there is a learning process um, in life, regardless of the fact that we are all born with more or less the same neural possibilities hmm? and the neural competencies like empathy. But growing in life, you, the brain learns what to do more or less. And I have to say that personal experiences are stronger than cultural experiences in shaping who you are. So if, for example, in your life you went through very tough childhood and uh, uh, I, I don't want to say abused in a sense, but it was, let's say, not, not so caring, not so warm environment. Maybe your brain learned, hey, if I use empathy, I, I receive worse, worse, you know, um, uh, results than if I'm not using empathy. So better not to use empathy. This is what the brain does. So maybe you will grow later to use less empathy than other people still the networks are there, but you're using them less. Okay, and this is what we're trying. And of course, if, if you if you if we go beyond the personal experiences, there are also cultural norms. There are cultural and societal norms that say this is not good to do in life. This is good to do in life, and you learn this again. Okay, but the, and the brain also will try to adjust. So there are differences between countries, but they are not biological differences. They are more learned. Yeah. Okay, this is why if you change culture, 
if you marry somebody from another culture. <laughs> like you did. <laughs> it's true, but the Greek culture and the Serbian culture are, are quite yeah, close. Yeah, pretty, pretty <laughs> close yeah. and, and many Norse are, are, are similar. So my brain didn't have to learn too much. Okay, to, 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 m- maybe liking pasteta, you know, I didn't like so much pasteta when I came. Now, now I love it. Rakia was very easy to love. Okay? Yeah. Of course. Very, very easy. I didn't have to learn at all to, to, to love Rakia. So what we do in different countries, we always observe different brain reactions to different things. And we have clients that maybe they have products and brands in various countries that ask us to do, to do comparative studies. And even in countries in the region that are very close, for example, we did a big study for a relaunch or a, re- a revamping of a very known FMCG brand in the region. And we did studies in, in Belgrade, we did in Zagreb, and we did in Ljubljana. And we did find differences. I would say the differences between Ljubljana uh, were much, much stronger than the difference between, let's say, Belgrade and Zagreb. This was closer than the brain differences in, in, in Slovenia. But there are differences, even in, in close cultures, or let's say within the same region. And it always fascinates me to find this these differences, and they can be very interesting. They can be differences again against cultural objects, like um, um, gender roles, for example. But also for a specific brand, you know, the, this this specific brand was was a, a legacy brand, for example, for Slovenia. So of course, the Slovenia brand had a much, much the, the Slovenian sample that we just had a much stronger response. Let's say the Croatian or the the Serbian yeah. one. So, yes, culture, every culture has its own um, uh, cultural objects that has a relationship to. So, you, you told me that you're measuring, how you're measuring it, but uh, how you're applying this, this how you're uh, uh, leveraging this to change the leaders and leadership? So, what was the traditional way of, of, of measuring leadership competences? And uh, if, if you look at the science and the practice around the world, it's actually psycho, psychometrics. You take a questionnaire, there are many famous companies, brands in the world, they offer this competence testing. You can do it for leaders, you can do it for salespeople, you can do it online and then... Online, yeah, then you get your score or, or, or some HR consulting company can do this for you. And the, there is also, you know, it follows with um, um, uh, maybe coaching and you try to develop. But this is very old science. If you see psychometric measurement science go back many decades. And the new kid on the block is neuroscience. So we're trying to do the same thing, measure your ability or your 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 knee-jerk reaction um, to various situations in life. So one of these is empathy. What is your readiness stage of empathy? Okay. So we do this through neuroscience now. I wouldn't say yet we replace psychometrics, but this is where it goes. Okay. Very soon this will happen. They will be replaced by neuroscience, by <laughs> wearing a yeah. And um, um, where, where can it be helpful? And we have even an academic paper that, um, that was... Um, just accepted for publication. It's a fantastic verification, scientific verification of our, of our methodology. So there are jobs, because we always say it's not objectively good or bad if you score high or low on empathy. That's not the point. Oh, you have low empathy. Let me lock you in a room, improve <laughs> your empathy, and then you come back. And, and usually our results are not like this. It's not only high or low empathy. It's also which emotions this is fantastic to see. Maybe you have higher empathy for anger 
or fear oh, or yeah. sadness, but less for joy. And we find this very often. Okay, so the idea is that first, to match empathy scores or empathy levels or empathy neural footprint with specific jobs. Because there are job positions that require you to have extremely strong empathy when you cry to cry. But there are others that do not and requires you to have lower emotional empathy. If you cry, I will say don't cry. Right, right. Or let me give you this to make you feel better. So, now, maybe it's a little bit stereotypical, but maybe in some sales positions where, where you need from your salespeople to go and have quick wins. Yeah. Then crying, when client crying, might be not be the best for the short run. For the long run, it's always best because you develop trust and uh, bonding. Maybe you want their brain to work very analytically, understand what is the main pain behind the crying and offer faster solution. Then in high emotional empathy does not fit. High analytical empathy cognitive should be there. So, so our approach is there is no absolute good or bad. Let's see what your job requires you to be and make sure that your empathy level... So the one is matching. The other, though, is improving. Because what is wonderful about the brain is, maybe you've heard it, neuroplasticity. Yeah. The fact that the hardware is changing. This is one big difference between machines and the brain, for example, which I hope we'll discuss in a bit. Yeah. The fact that it's not hardware and software. The software is a result of the hardware. It's not something different that comes to be downloaded. The hardware, the neurons produce the software, and the software has the ability to change the hardware, which is absolutely fascinating and completely different than what we can, how we, we deal with machines or what machines are very, very different. So neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to strengthen or weaken competences connections that create the competencies. So even if you score low or very high in some of our measures, and we don't measure only empathy, we measure resilience, which is very, very appropriate and fitting to the pandemic now, you know, the global crisis. Yes. We measure mindset, you know, growth versus fixed, just by electroencephalogram. Neuroplasticity is the biggest, the biggest and most important finding of neuroscience because your brain changes and this is amazing whoever was using neuroscience or psychology to say this is who Nemanja is and that's it this is why I don't like personality tests for example because if I ask you to take this personality test ah, that's your personality can you change it say Nikos it's my personality usually it's built over decades maybe I can change it I will try but in brain science that's not the case this is why neuroscience with Neuroscience does not accept fully personality tests. We talk more about cognitive strategies rather than, or brain strategies, rather than personality traits. Okay. So instead of looking at you as somebody that it is the product of, you know, tens of years, I will not reveal your age, okay, tens of years <laughs> of... I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, ten, tens of years of, you know, life and interactions... The, we understand that the brain actually can change quite fast. Faster than what we thought that personality can change. And this is the big hope message that neuroscience is bringing. So we measure leaders, we work, we try to match their 
brain footprint with, with jobs, but we're also helping them to change, to reinforce some aspects and maybe weaken others so they can become better in life, in what they want to achieve. You mentioned it earlier, brain and the machine. And that's the next question for me, uh, uh, to you today. Uh, there is so many sayings out there. It's similar how machine works and how brain works. But there are so many saying that is completely different. Where is the truth? So we tend to anthropomorphize. You know, we see something and immediately, because of empathy, we immediately we project the way we see things to them, even to animals, and, and uh, now to machines as well. I th- my current belief is that machines and humans, they might share some common characteristics, but we're fundamentally extremely different. We cannot be more different. So all these con- conversations about the singularity moment... Yeah, Wait, waiting for some big AI to... To, to kill us or to yeah, yeah. Or, or put us up there? It's completely PR. Startups needs money. To, to, to attract investors, they need to have some groundbreaking story. And this groundbreaking story has to be sensational. And the more sensational the story, the more investors go and put <laughs> money. But it's, it's all about startup ecosystem. So what is the big difference between machines and, and, and humans? It's, it's actually very simple. If you believe that humans are born completely empty, it's called the blank slate theory. Tabula rasa, when we are born, we're a completely empty book. And then we are molded into whatever society molds us in. Then, of course, machines can be like us because when we create a machine, it's completely empty and we program it as we want. But that's a debunked theory. Actually, this... Black slate, um, you know, tabula rasa theory. Um, it came mostly out of, of uh, French um, philosophers, 18th century mainly, and it was used in communism. So f- communism, in order to create a society, an ideal society, how they thought the communist thinkers... And be, that everybody should think the same way. Exactly the same way and in a specific way. Okay, they said, okay, humans are born completely empty so we can actually educate their minds to be exactly... But now we know that's not the case, that humans come in life factory ready. It's <laughs> With human universal empathy, sense of morality, specific sense of morality, also is factory ready and many other things. Now, who programmed us? This question reveals the arrogance of us believing we will create machines like us. Because we believe that we program each other. You know, society, education, culture. Of course, it's complex and big and chaotic, but we do it. Humans do it to humans. But it's not that. It's nature do it to us. Also, humans do it, but it's a small part of who we are. The machinery is already there. The algorithms are already there. We can fine-tune them here there, but the algorithms are there. Who programmed these algorithms? Like when a baby is born, empathy networks are there. Of course, when we are born, not all connections are ready. The connection there, but it creates yes, but genes have specific information of how this is going to be created. And this is why I believe is is both arrogant and dangerous. And it was proven by a Microsoft bot. So they created a Microsoft bot 
that it would, they launched it on social media and they said to the bot, learn and behave as a, as a, as a human online with your own social media account. And they had to, to kill it at the end of the day. They had to stop it because it became a racist Nazi. <laughs> because it learned from online. Because the bot does not have millions of years of evolution. Mm, it lack of it. Behind us. So who we are today, the machinery that creates the software, the software is not downloaded into the machinery. So in human brain-body environment, brain-body environment system, The machine, the software and the hardware are one thing. The hardware creates the software and the software impacts on the, on the hardware. So we are so arrogant to believe that actually what we are is my phenomena in my mind. You know, what I see, what I recognize, the thoughts. So if robots are able, I train robots to recognize pieces of art. So if, if robots recognize pieces of art, they are human-like because I can recognize pieces of art. But my recognition and the way that this works does not come out of the vacuum. It comes through brain that has evolved through millennia. But the robot has not. So if, if we allow robots to evolve for millennia, then yes, we can. But then it will, not be, it will be something completely different. And something else that I, I find completely fascinating. You know, we are... We are products of, of evolution. Evolution is a specific way that nature works. Okay. And sometimes there are changes that happen into us uh, because of mutations. This is how evolution works. Small ones that might not be important for generations and generations and generations. You know, some mutation that happened, and you think that it is evolutionary garbage. But after 1,000 generations, this trait becomes useful. There is a, a great experiment that a, a biologist, um, I think it was a biologist, he started it in the late 80s. He took some single-cell organisms, you know, like specific bacteria, and he put them into a bottle. No, not a simple bottle, of course, in a lab. And he left them there completely locked everything, and he's observing different generations because they, they um, copy themselves very fast, so there are thousands of generations yeah. very fast. He sees mutations and how do they adapt to the environment of the bottle full of water, of course. So okay. he has a speed effect of the evolution. Bravo, exactly. And what did he find out? In the 22nd thousandth generation, the, because he was taking out to, you know, under the, the, the methodology to check the genetical changes of the mutations, He found out that in 22nd thousandth generation, a mutation happened. But this mutation had zero evolutionary advantage for them living there. This became useful on the 30,000th generation, where the water that we're keeping them in had a specific change on the chemical composition, and that gene helped them to be more efficient. Incredible. 10,000th generation. So you see that we are very arrogant to think that We can create something like it's it's a caricature of the and, and there are many more arguments i'm just mentioning some so instead of saying we will create consciousness and free will and another if free will exists i'm not sure free will exists like <laughs> most of us think but this is arrogant because we take just 
the phenomenal experience of what we live and say we will recreate this. But it's not so that simple. Now, this does not mean that what we create is not fantastic. I'm actually fascinated by AI you know, and, and about machine learning. I'm fascinated. But we should stop the stupidity of thinking we will create it. I mean, this is, as I said, PR and, you know, people try to sell things by saying these things. Let's tone this down and focus in the fantastic technological advancement can, for what they are, not what, you know, we project on them. And what we can get from them, right? Right, right. Uh, so, Nico, I always like to finish with a future question. And uh, tell me, from your perspective, uh, what we can expect from this field of neuroscience, let's say, let's say 30 years from now. That, that's a fantastic question. And, and I think neuroscience already being a new science generally, okay, uh, especially technologically, we can say that neuroscience is 100 years old because of this guy, Cajal, the Spanish guy that uh, for the first time he drew uh, a neuron and its connections to other neurons. And 1969, I think in the US, the Association of Neuroscientists was set up. But it's after the 80s that we have the technology to really discover so amazing. So fMRI scan and all this PET scan, it's after the 80s. To confirm your hypothesis and everything. Yes, and like to create also new ones. Yeah. To, of course, many things that we thought were correct before were, were abolished, you know, they were, they were not confirmed and new questions came up. So from the 80s, there are many amazing things that neuroscience found that still did not get into mainstream education or understanding of who we are or even management and leadership. So even if we just allowed, open a little bit the door more for neuroscience to come in, even now it would change drastically what we do, even more in 30 years. Because the way that I see neuroscience, and I'm not alone, is that a little bit how you started this interview. You said we know so many things about the oceans and we know so many things about you know, the space. So neuroscience for me is the third biggest scientific revolution in humankind that changes the way that we perceive ourselves and our role in the universe. The first one was what we call the heliocentric revolution. Before, not everybody, because even in ancient Greece, they, they say, oh, but Aristotle thought that um, the Earth is the center and everything goes around and this was wrong. True. But there were other ancient thinkers, even back then, that were against Aristotle saying, no, Earth is actually moving around the sun. Unfortunately, the church, uh, the, Christi the Christian church is very much based on Aristotle and Plato. Okay. Actually, Aristotle was considered the big authority in church. And this is why actually they, when, when Galileo said that, you know, actually we are going around Copernicus and Galileo. And they observed, they said, no, you cannot go against the Aristotelian thinking. So when we accepted that the Earth is not the center of the universe. It was a huge revolution because human, humankind's home planet all of a sudden was not something special. We were just a rock going around the sun, going around you know, a galaxy. It, was a, it is not just a simple scientific revolution. It changes our place in the universe. The second slapping of our egoism of our arrogance, was the evolution, uh, evolution theory, you know, the Darwinian theory. Now, we, we knew even before Darwin that evolution happened. We didn't know how. So 
uh, actually, the, the big plus of, of, of Darwin was that not only evolution has happened, but natural selection has happened, which is completely random. There is no big scheme behind, you know, or, 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 or a big purpose behind nature. So the first big revolution said humans, you're just, you're, you're just a, a speck of, of sand, of dust going around somewhere in some place in the universe, completely uh, unimportant or, or non-specific. The same with Darwin. Darwin did the same for nature. So we as human beings, we're just another animal with natural selection, with some completely random um, um, mutations and happenings brought you where you are. And, and this was a big, again, slapping of our arrogance that we are so special and so different <laughs> that we are here and all the other animals that we can kill and we do whatever we want. The third one is neuroscience, because it, it, it kills the arrogance of inside our brain. The fact that we now know, and that's a topic for another, of course, session, the fact that we know that the brain decides before us, and that what we see in our mind is just a very tiny process of the brain. The brain has so many processes, it also has what we call conscious experience. It knocks us from this arrogant uh, arrogant throne of I'm in control of my life, I know everything, I decide, you know, and I'm fully responsible for it. And now we know with neuroscience that that's not the case. So as heliocentrism, you know, the fact that we, we are not the center and everything goes around us, but we are just on a rock going around everything else. And then that human beings within the natural ecosystem, they're not something special, but you know, natural selection, random mutations brought us where we are, still kept the importance of our mind. Now that neuroscience says that our mind is another process, probably maybe it's not even the most important process of the brain, kind of says, oops. Then as the, the, the accident that happened and my brain switched me off and switched me on, then I realized I'm not in control. What I say I is this very limited view of my mind. There is a whole bigger um, equipment in there that does what it does. I think changes everything. With heliocentrism, with natural selection evolution, and now with neuroscience, we have the ability to finally understand who we are, to bring us down from some theoretical mountain of importance. Hmm. But then, and I think that's the most important message, to see what's really important. Because I think we missed what is really important. Thank you so much for, for this conversation. I enjoyed it so much. And for you out there, if you enjoyed and uh, you haven't subscribed, do it and see you next Thursday when we talk about some new stuff, new innovations. Smash this like button. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much.